Hello and welcome once again to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. We're delighted that you're spending a little bit of time with us this week on the podcast. Uh, We're in a series right now called Mountains and Seas and Gardens and Roads. We're walking through uh, this journey, this kind of cyclical journey of the Gospels. We spent the first couple weeks talking about Matthew, answering the question, how do we face change? There's this dominant image of mountains that happens all throughout Matthew. And this week, we started in on the Gospel of Mark, where the dominant image is this like stormy, chaotic sea. And uh, the big question uh, at hand is, how do we face suffering? Uh, it's maybe a little bit heavy, um, but I think ultimately it's going to be a very good one because the uh, the the overall message of this one is sort of uh, the idea of walking through life with tension, um, tension between perhaps the pain and the suffering of what is right now, uh, but also the hope of what is to come. It's the same sort of tension we saw Jesus uh, walk through many parts of his life with, and um, it's something that as as believers, as followers of Christ, uh, is something that's pretty essential to that walk. So uh, we hope you enjoy this message for our lead pastor, Seth Cain. Uh, it's week four, I think, um, but seas part one of mountains and seas and gardens and roads. <laughs> Thank you. I have to say thanks. She's applauding. That's incredible. That's how good She is. That's how good she is. Um, Thank you guys so much for being here, whether you're joining us in person or online. This is The Foundry, where we're all about a better you and a better world, and my name is Seth, so thank you for being here. Yeah. Hi, 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 hi. Okay, so we're in week four of our series called Mountains and Seas and Gardens and Roads, and what we're doing is we're looking at the Gospels through the lens of like early Christians, through the lens of early Christianity, and how they would have probably understood the Gospels as four separate texts written to four separate communities dealing with four distinct set of issues based on historical circumstance. And, and they understood each gospel to kind of be handling and addressing a particular issue. So Matthew deals with how do we face change. Mark deals with how do we move through suffering. Uh, John deals with how do we receive joy. And then Luke deals with how do we mature in service. And so rather than like these four gospels telling like one story, but just a little bit differently, This is four different stories for four different groups of people for four different reasons. And then when you put them in line, it creates this like this path, this fourfold journey. It's one journey that's geared towards spiritual transformation. Now, last week we talked about Matthew and we talked about climbing the mountain and how do we face change. This week we're going to move on to Mark. And the question of Mark is how do we move through suffering? How do we move through suffering? And then the key imagery in Matthew is like either the desert or the stormy seas. That's kind of what we're going with, the stormy seas. Now, before we get into this any further, I I should kind of give you a heads up here with all this stuff, because uh, as tough as climbing the mountain may be, as tough as going through change may be, uh, this second path, how do we move through suffering, is is more difficult. (laughs) Yay. <laughs> Welcome to the Foundry. We're all about suffering and depression. Um, th- this is a really, really tough part of the journey. It- it's it's the hardest of the four paths. It's the hardest of the four paths. But the good news, I, if there is good news here, is that despite being the hardest, it's actually the least 
complicated. Okay, so let's do a little bit of history on this so that we can kind of know who Mark's writing to and how that's all working. Well, we're going to talk about the, the, um, like the, the who, when, where Mark is writing, the historical context this week. We'll talk about a few things um, dealing with all that uh, and then leading up to the Passion. And then next week, we'll get into like the week of Passion through the end. So the book of Matthew, which we talked about last week, was written to this group of Messianic Jews, right, that have, have uh, moved to Antioch, like, uh, shortly after the disruption, the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. And so Matthew was writing to that group of people. Mark, he is writing, like, in the mid-60s CE, and he's writing to this group of Messianic Jews who are located in Rome. In the first century, Rome was like the center of the world. Scholars estimate there would have been like two million people around by, by 60 CE in Rome. Um, of that two million people, about 2% of that was the Jewish population, so like 30 to 40,000 people. Now, despite being just a tiny sliver of the, of the population, the Roman government like kept a, a close eye on the Jewish people. And so what happened was there, there was like this continual cycle that was happening where there'd be moments of peace in the empire and then something would happen and then the Jews would get evicted from Rome for a little while, then it would go back to peace, then they would come back in, then something would happen again. And you just see this over and over again. So there was, the Jews were evicted uh, out of Rome in 139 BCE, 19 CE, and then 49 CE as well. So like six years after that in uh, 54 CE, Emperor Nero he comes into power, and, and the Jews are allowed to return. There's this moment of peace. But then, like, within nine, ten years, ten years, things start to get a little bit messy. They get, like, really messy. Okay? And here, so here's kind of the, the, the quick synopsis, as we can, of this. You have um, this kind of ongoing tension between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. So there's this, like, first level of tension. Now, you also have tension between... Uh, within the Jewish community of the, the, the Jews and then the people that were Jewish that believed Jesus might in fact be the Messiah. So there's tension amongst the Jewish community as well. So you have tension and then you have another layer of tension. And then not only that, but what you see is that um, in and around this time, uh, Peter and Paul both end up and kind of overlap in Rome. And so there's these questions about like who is kind of leading and guiding the church. So there's tension amongst the Messianic Jews about kind of that sort of thing. So it's just like tension within tension within tension. And so 10 years after Nero comes into power, you have the great fire in Rome, 64 CE. We talked about this a little bit in the first week. A fire destroys this massive chunk of the Roman, uh, of Rome. There's um, a lot of speculation about who did it. Many people believe Nero did it. Many uh, people, maybe not, but Nero had these plans to like rebuild the city of Rome and so it's possible, all this stuff. Um, and so at some point, like, Nero's own people are kind of getting a bit frustrated and fed up with him. Like, if he did this, like, why would he do this whole, whole thing? And so uh, they essentially, Nero needs like a scapegoat, right? He's, he's trying to just get the pressure off of him and pin it on somebody else. And as luck would have it, he had this whole group of people, the Jewish people, who lived in the Jewish quarter, who was over the Tiber River, who was on the outskirts of the city that didn't burn. Oh, yeah, 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 well probably they did. Look, there's the only one that didn't burn. I mean, it was across the river, but, you know, whatever. Let's just blame the Jews for that as well. So you have this, this tension that begins to build. The, the, the blame is placed on the Jewish people for this fire. And then at some point, somebody goes to Nero and says, uh, yeah, so it wasn't the Jewish people per se. It was like this fringe group of 
people that are following this guy called Christ, the Christos followers. And so it wasn't just, it was like this small fringe group of Christos followers. So Nero demands the Jewish community to immediately cooperate with the Roman soldiers to identify those among them who were following Christ. So in the face of like this great turmoil, uh, in the face of the entire, their entire people group suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire, the Jewish community consented to helping the Romans kind of out the followers of Jesus. So the result being at this time was like this mini genocide, right? The really, really brutal time for these Christ followers. Roman guards were going from door to door um, demanding to know if anybody in the house was a believer, right? And depending on what they said, there was a different result. If they accepted or confessed to being a believer, then everybody in the household would be taken. They would be taken to like the Circus Maximus to be publicly executed and tortured. One of the things that they would do, one of the many grotesque things that they would do is they would keep the prisoners shackled and then they would pour blood on them and then they would allow starving dogs, they would let loose starving dogs on them and let them be eaten before the people of Rome. Like this is rough stuff. But if, if the person said, no, I'm, I'm not a believer, then they were required to point to somebody who was, somebody they suspected, somebody they thought. You know, it's just like it's passing the buck. It's another scapegoat sort of thing. And so once they named a person, that person was immediately taken and executed with no opportunity for appeal or protest. So you have this tension within tension within tension, and then you have this edict, either you die for what you believe or you point to somebody else who will die so that you don't have to, so that... Like, it's a, it's kind of a messed up sort of situation, isn't it? Like, this is, like, families were turning on families, neighbors on neighbors, fear and paranoia are running rampant, and it was all around just like a lose-lose situation for anyone Jewish in Rome at this time. In the end, the Messianic Jewish community in Rome was basically, like, wiped out. Like, there wasn't much left. Like, they'd taken out so many of them, including... Peter and Paul, the two early leaders of the faith. This whole situation is just an absolute mess. Now think about, think about if you're one of these Messianic Jews at this time. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Um, in their hearts and minds, they are faithful Jews living out their belief in God. They're, 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 they're living out their belief in God. But they're faithful Jews who have come to believe in this Jesus guy and that he is, in fact, the Savior, that he is the Messiah. But in their heart... They're still Jewish. That's their community. That's their people. That's their identity. And now they're going through this thing where they've already experienced this heightened tension uh, simply by being a Jew in Rome. And now because of this like historical like fire, this thing that like destroyed so much of Rome, the, the, like there's even more pressure and tension surrounding this. Like the, the Christus followers, as as they've gone through this, I'm sure felt some sense of betrayal, some sort of abandonment, abandonment by their own community, right? Their families, their friends, their loved ones, their kids, even Peter and Paul, are gruesomely murdered by the Romans. Right? These early believers would have been wrestling with an incredible amount of pain and hurt and suffering, maybe even asking and wondering, like, if this whole Christ-following thing is even worth it. Where are the promises of God? If this is the Messiah, where are the promises? Is, is this how the Messiah comes to rescue and save? Is this what this is like? Because this doesn't feel very rescuey. Now, how many of us have gone through some stuff? Maybe not like threat of death for what you believe, 
But we've all gone through some stuff that seems quite daunting. We've all dealt with difficulties, difficulties, and like maybe even wrestled with the same question. Like, where is God in this? How come the Savior of the world isn't saving me from this? Where, where is God? So terror, shame, hurt, pain, frustration, feelings of abandonment, and even the threat of death is the context to which this gospel of Mark is written. How do you speak to, to that feeling, to that? Um, earlier, a couple of months ago, we had a situation where uh, we had a, a, a funeral director came to our church uh, on like an like a office day, and they were like, hey, we have somebody that's in need of a service, but we don't have a building for them. Can you, would you guys help us out? Can you do the service here? And uh, once we agreed to it, uh, we found out that it wasn't just like a single funeral. It was like a double funeral. And, and granted, uh, we ended up not doing it because they got another venue. So, but as I was preparing for this thing I thought I was supposed to do, I found out that it's this double funeral. It was a father and a stepson who died hiking. And so I'm thinking about this mother and this wife who just lost her husband and her son on the same day and is going to have to show up to this place and listen to this stranger attempt to give some sort of hope, right? And so I started working this thing. I wrote about half of it. And I, and I knew, I knew, like, because it was just, it was a lot to wrestle with. Like, what do you say in this moment to this woman? Because, like, the standard Christian cliches aren't going to work that well. Like, I had to be direct. I had to be, I, she didn't need like flowery language. She just needed direct. You need to get to the point. She needed me to address the knife that had been stuck into her heart. I needed to address that to be able to pull that out lovingly and tenderly. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you say here? Most of the funerals that I've done are like, you know, it's celebration of life type stuff. So yes, we're sad because they're gone, but also there's this eternal hope that we, that we trust in. But this was not really that kind of situation. And so I knew I had to, to be direct. I knew I had to address the things. I knew I had to speak the tough things. Yeah, some, sometimes it, it sucks and I, I don't know. I don't have maybe some answers for that. Like I don't, like what do you say? Because those kind of cliched things don't work for this woman in this moment. You see, what we see Mark doing here in this gospel is, is Mark is doing this exact thing. It's the shortest gospel. It's one of, one of the, like, uh, the, the most direct ones. It's not flowery. It's not overly articulate. Mark gets to the point. He gives nothing but the barest of outlines for this. His, his stories are stark, but they're also revelatory, right? Like, why? Well, two reasons. One is because Messianic Jews are living under this death sentence, in Rome. They don't have the need or the time for something flowery and sentimental, like just tell us the thing to help us survive through this moment. And the second thing is, the reason he does this is because the core message of Mark's gospel is very simple, very direct, but also very tough. The, the Messiah in Mark's gospel understood the suffering of his followers. The Messiah that came to earth, that took on human form and withstood this agonizing pain. The Messiah of Mark wants his followers to know that pain, that the pain that they were experiencing was a part of something larger. He not only understood their suffering, but was there with them as they suffered. So Mark, despite having this like sparseness of words, 
He actually does employ a few like um, literary devices uh, that, that we see show up a, a few times throughout his writing. Um, he uses metaphors of the wilderness and desert and the flowing bodies of water and seas. He, he does this as a way to tap into like their Jewish history, their heritage. If you go back into the history of the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, you see there's wilderness, there's desert, there's the crossing of the Red Sea, the Red Sea that was their great barrier to freedom. In the Hebrew writings, deserts and wilderness and seas represent fear, anxiety, death. They represent this internal landscape of frightening and uncharted territories. So Mark is writing to this group of people that is in desperate need. And sometimes it it feels a bit bleak. It feels a bit like, where is the hope? But if you pay attention, if you pay attention close, what you see is that he not only never writes only of pain and hurt, like he also mentions, uh, like he, he, he mentions the wilderness, desert, and seas, but he always couples that to something of like some sort of image of hope and comfort. Like when he speaks to, of, of John the Baptist, he talks about John, how John ate locust and wild honey, like gross, but also sweet, right? When, when Jesus goes out into the desert to be tempted by the devil, it says that he was surrounded by wild animals or beasts and angels. So Mark always has this like contrast of things that he's pointing out to. He acknowledges the difficulty, but then he follows it with hope, follows it with hope. And this is how Mark helps us to move through the second path. This is how Mark is teaching us how do we deal with suffering, okay? So now, with no further ado, let's get into it, okay? (laughs) So now that you've got all that wonderful stuff. Okay, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. To which the immediate question, after we've learned everything that we've learned about Rome and what was happening there, with all the tension and terror and betrayal and death, maybe the immediate question is like, what good news? Yeah, that's fine for you to say, but like, we don't really have much to celebrate right now. Do you, do you understand what we're going through? Like, how can you just show up with, here's the good news? But Mark is trying to remind them of the truth of Jesus and the hope and the glory that is found within this truth. Mark, from this point on, will carry the Christus followers into the deepest understanding of their beliefs and the possibilities and meanings and the purpose that can be found within their suffering. Now, if you notice, unlike Matthew, Matthew in his gospel opens up with the genealogy of Jesus. Mark doesn't do that. Mark doesn't do the backstory of Jesus like Matthew does. Mark gets to the point. To the people who are suffering and need something, he gets right to the point. He gets to the thing that will matter most to the Messianic Jews. He's, this is the good news. He's here. It's happening right now. So Jesus says he is here, and then he moves directly into this prophecy of the suffering servant from Isaiah, the suffering servant who would come to fulfill, the, uh, to come to suffer for his people. So Mark chapter 1, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So this is from Isaiah 40 which is in reference to John the Baptist, but Isaiah 40 is connected and leads into chapter 42 where we see this, the, the actual, some of the suffering, suffering servant stuff. A bruised reed will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring justice. Okay, so Mark is opening this gospel by drawing the attention of his readers, the listeners, the people from Rome 
to thoughts of this suffering servant. Why? Well, because they are suffering. Mark also, this is the first mention of wilderness, right? He's getting right to where they are. Then he begins to talk about John the Baptist, that John is out baptizing people. Where is he doing this? He's doing it in the wilderness, right? This is all very intentional. Um, in, in Matthew's gospel, when he begins to describe the scene around the baptism of Jesus, John is out there baptizing people, and, and, and Matthew's gospel focuses on the religious people, right? Mark's gospel is a little bit different. Mark doesn't focus on the religious people. Mark is focused on just like the everyday people. In both Gospels, they talk about John inviting people to repent of their sins, but Matthew and Mark are doing two different things with this. In Matthew, the repentance of sins is to the religious people who have missed some things. To Mark, this says this, and John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He preaches baptism of forgiveness uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and the, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So Mark is writing to this group of people who have been abandoned by their larger community, who have witnessed the atrocities of violence in Rome, who have experienced betrayal from, from their own, like the, at the deepest possible level. These are people who would be potentially harboring feelings of anger, bitterness, frustration, disappointment. Why is this happening to me? Why did they, right? All the different things, all these different things that if we do not address them and deal with them will like eat us up inside. They, they, they will become toxic if we do not address them and deal with them. And so Mark in this situation has the everyday people around John the Baptist. And John is inviting them to confess, to repent of their sin. Mark is showing them, these people that have been dealing with so much hurt, that there is a way for you to process the pain. There is a way for you to process the pain and to begin this process of healing and forgiveness, right? Confess the sins of what's harboring, what you're harboring in here. Confess these sins in order to forgive yourself, in order to forgive your families, in order to forgive the community so that you can begin to move forward. You can't just keep wallowing in all of that hurt and pain. Now, uh, Mark starts to go really fast in the next section uh, because, again, he's, very, he's getting to the point. He's not no frill sort of guy. Watch what he does here starting in verse 9. This is still chapter 1. Jesus baptized in Jordan River, verse 12. Jesus led into the wilderness, verse 14. Jesus goes into Galilee to preach. Verse 16, Jesus calls his disciples. In Matthew's gospel, we don't see the temptation of Jesus or the calling of the disciples until like chapter four, right? Mark is like, bam, 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 let's knock this out. Not four chapters, this is 16 verses to get to the same place. He's getting to the point because the people are suffering and they need him to get to the point. Now, I want to look at uh, verses 10 through 12 real quick because there are a couple interesting things here. Matthew chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son with whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So here we have one of these moments where Mark is coupling the negative and the positive or the pros and the cons or the pain and the hope, however you want to say it. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism, it says that the heavens opened and then the Spirit descended. In Mark's gospel, it says that uh, the heavens were torn open. They were ripped 
open. There's an edge to it. There's a, a bit of destructiveness to it. There is, it's, a, it's almost like it's painful. So you have this picture of pain and hurt, but it's also followed by the Spirit of God descending like a dove, which is a symbol of hope. So you have this tension of pain, but also hope. Then in verse 12, we see uh, this coupling again. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Another reference to the wilderness, a place of fear, a place of pain. You have Jesus being tempted by Satan. Then he's surrounded by wild animals. Some translations say beast, but he's also surrounded by angels. So you have the desperation and hurt of the wilderness and temptation, but you also have here comes the angels to attend to him. Right? So if you look closely at the Gospel of Mark, Mark does this kind of thing all over the place. And this seems to be like part of the second path, that we become aware of these internal opposites, these internal tensions that we are all continually wrestling with and dealing with as we move through suffering. Right? So after the first path of Matthew, yes, there is this change. And we know that change can be difficult, but we also know, as we learned in, in the past two weeks, is that God is with us. God is with us. And so there's this anticipation that things will get better. And, and they will, eventually. But first, we have a lot of stuff that we have to work through. We have a lot of stuff that we have to work through um, because of the change and because how we've responded to it. So Mark is taking us on this, like, taking us deep within the self for us to examine these parts of us that we don't really want to deal with. All the things that, that we have hidden or covered up after the change. These are the things that Mark is inviting us to confess and to deal with, right? The second path is really about doing the deep inner work. It's about this deep moral inventory. If you're familiar with the 12-step programs, step four is the searching and fearless moral inventory. This is dying to the self. This is addressing and acknowledging everything that's building up inside of you. This is digging up all of the ugly. This is getting to the root Right? And this can be very, 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 very difficult because we like to cling to things, because we like to, to, to keep up the nice facade about, yeah, how's it going? Oh, no, it's great. Is it? Is it? I think if we were honest with ourselves, it's not maybe going so great at a lot of times. It's easier for us to not take responsibility for everything we're wrestling with internally. Now, we move along. We get into chapter two, chapter two through eight, Jesus is like teaching and, and, and preaching, and he's uh, traveling all over the Decapolis, okay? The Decapolis is like t ten, this region of 10 different cities um, located in and around the Galilee. So Jesus is continually back and forth crossing the Sea of Galilee. Like you always see the stories like he went to the, to the shore, he crossed to go get some quiet, he crossed to go get some peace, whatever. He's going over this place, doing that thing. And so what you see is that Mark records at least four different accounts of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. And within each of these crossings, what you actually find in these stories is like the core teaching of Mark's gospel. And the very first crossing account um, kind of like encapsulates all four of the other accounts. Okay, so I want to look at this because I want you to see what Mark is doing because it's really quite fascinating here. So Mark chapter 4 you may be familiar with the story. This is when Jesus calms the seas, but there's a lot of stuff happening here. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind them, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. 
a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Okay, I think I'm pausing there because we've got to say something about this. So Jesus, it begins with, uh, it was evening. I don't know if you caught that. It begins with the, uh, uh, that day when evening came. So they begin the journey at night, which means it's going to be a little bit scarier to begin with. It also means it's dark, right? So now there's this, this like layer, this extra layer of fear and whatever in the situation. Then you have this furious squall. This giant storm shows up, and they're on this little boat, and they're being tossed around by the sea in the dark. They're trapped in this boat in the middle of this crazy storm, and they can't make sense of where they're at because they can't see. They're panicking. They're afraid. Where is Jesus in the middle of this storm? Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So in the middle of their panic at the chaos that they're experiencing, Jesus is is napping. Jesus is not stressed. He's not worried. He's not panicked. He is peaceful. He is peaceful in the face of the storm. They rush to wake him up. Don't you care if we drown? Aren't you going to do anything about this? Get up, save us, rescue us. We're in a tough tough spot. We need you to intervene right now or else we're going to die. We don't... You ever had these moments crying out to God where your sea gets a bit stormy and you're begging God to intervene? God, where are you? How come... You're not doing anything. Don't you care about me at all? Like you can hear the despair in the comments from the disciples. Don't you care if we drown? Right? The, the, this panic and fear of the disciples that Mark puts on display in this moment is intended to parallel the emotional state of the Messianic Jews in Rome, the ones who feel like they're the, on the boat in the chaos, the one who feels like they're about to drown like they are close to death, the ones who feel abandoned and stranded by their faith in Christ. They were the ones in this time of crisis living with this fear that their lives were in danger. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. In the middle of the storm, Jesus cries out, be still, and the storm immediately stops. Mark is sending a message for the Christians in Rome who are wondering, where is God at in the middle of our chaos? Has God abandoned us? Is Jesus the Messiah? And through this this story, Mark is trying to get them to see that Jesus is with them through the storm that they are facing. Yes, Jesus is all-powerful Messiah, and that God is with them, right? the, The way that Jesus is with the disciples in the boat as they face the storm in the night, right, Christ is with you also. That's what he's trying to get the people of Rome, the Roman Jewish people, to see. What Jesus did here, he's actually also doing for you there now. And then we see him say this, verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, obviously, again, a lot going on here. There's the message of not panicking in the middle of the storm. There's the message of trusting God in the middle of the storms of your life. But when you look at the progression of the crossing stories, right, this one kind of exemplifies all of them, but there are several throughout the gospel, there's something interesting that comes up because there's this, like, basic idea that, that is quite powerful here, that, yes, God has the power to calm the storm, but also the storms are a time and a place of growth for us, 
This is why this is difficult. What is Jesus doing in the storm? He's resting. He's a picture of calm and peace. He's a picture of the thing that we are invited to experience in the middle of the chaos of our lives. This is possible. The disciple, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, they have not learned how to do this yet. They have not learned this lesson. There's this spiritual immaturity that they're working on, that they're trying to grow through. They haven't learned to trust God enough to find this inner peace in the middle of the stormy seas. And so over the course of these like uh, crossing uh, stories, what you see is that Jesus kind of grows more and more impatient with them. Like at the end of this one, he says, do, why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? The disciples... They want God to show up and perform a miracle every time the seas get rough. And I think what Jesus is trying to teach them, and I think what Mark is trying to highlight to us through this, is that when their faith, is that through their faith in God, they could in fact come to a place of peace and serenity in the midst of the trial. Right? You can't have this. This is why Jesus is getting a bit impatient. You keep expecting God to fix things, and then if he doesn't, then your faith is like shaken. You haven't learned to trust God enough to keep calm, whether he like calms the storm or not. They haven't yet discovered this deeper inner peace, this inner peace of trusting in God. So Mark sends this message through the crossing accounts to the Messianic Jews in Rome who are waiting for a miracle in the middle of great persecution for their faith. They feel as though they are the ones trapped on the boat at night on the stormy seas. They are the ones fearing for their lives. Mark tells them this story to remind them that God is with them in the storm and God is with them in the storm, whether God quiets the storm or not. The, the, the message is that God is certainly capable of rescue, but God will not always rescue because it may be that that rescue will stifle your growth. This is why this is, this is really hard. This can be a very difficult lesson to learn because what we want when we're really going through it is just somebody to show up and end the pain. Just take this away. Just fix this. Just make this better. Let's, let's, let's see a miracle. Let's have this thing happen. But that's not really how like, you learn and you, you grow. We, we have a bunch of chickens at our house, a bunch of chickens, and, and they lay eggs, and occasionally we, we've tried to hatch some of these eggs. And I don't know if you know this, but a mother hen, and kind of just in general, the mother hen will never help the chick hatch. The chick has to do it. The chick has to poke the hole and struggle and squirm and chirp and get really angry. Like the mother hen never does that. And they tell you if you're hatching your own, don't ever pick the peel away because that chick needs to go through that process. That chick has to be able to struggle to be able to develop the muscles that it needs to survive. You see, Mark's gospel and these crossing accounts teach us that they're th these lessons that are some of the most difficult for us to like relate to, connect to, want to like put into our daily lives because it forces us to wrestle with our traditional understanding of who God is. It forces us to wrestle with this traditional understanding that God is this like super parental divine rescuer. And that God is just going to fix things all the time. And that if God is not fixing it, then either I've done something wrong or God's upset or not. But no, Mark is trying to show us that certainly God can rescue, but God will not always rescue. 
And it's not because God doesn't love us, doesn't love you. It's quite the opposite. It's because he loves you that God wants you to grow and to develop the spiritual muscles that we need not only to survive but to thrive. Right, so, so what do we learn from Mark about how do we move through suffering just in the little bits we've looked at? What do we do when we feel like we're the ones on the boat being tossed around in, this, in the seas of life and it's dark and we don't know where to go? There's really only like two helpful options here. It's really only two things for you to do. You keep rowing the boat, you remain, and you pray. You ask God for guidance, patience, strength through this. I mean, you can ask God to fix it, sure, of course, like you can always ask for that. But if God doesn't fix it, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, right? So we remain, we row, we pray, we seek godly wisdom in these moments. You see, we have this like natural impulse to want the pain to be taken away. We want God to fix it immediately. We want God to get up and calm the storm. And our impulse to force resolution in the middle of the chaos and the hurt and the pain, that can actually be, that's like a sign of our immaturity to some degree. No, he has to fix this. He has to fix this. He has to fix this because I can't make it through. But maybe this is how we, how we learn and how we grow. When we attempt to avoid the difficulty, we, we, we reduce our opportunity to grow and to learn from our journey, which is why this path is really, really hard. Because like the immaturity of the disciples are looking for this God who can only rescue and provide in times of peril. And when we do this, we actually seem to make God a bit smaller. God is just there to fix the stuff. That's all God is so good for. Just fix it, just fix it, just fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at some point, like you need to grow to the point that you're able to trust God through it. Like Jesus was sleeping in the stern as the storm raged. You know, when my kids were little, I used to have to do everything for them. Scoop the food, wipe the noses, tie the shoes, right? And I watched my kids st tie their shoes and they struggle and it's really hard and it's frustrating because we gotta go, so now I'm frustrated because like, hurry up, what are you doing? But they're trying to do it. You're like, just... But eventually, that struggle leads to them tying their own shoes. And now my kids can do that on their own. And now I don't have to worry about things. And, and my kids know that I'm there for them. They, they, I believe they trust me when it comes to things of life. Like, they know I'm there. But now, because of what I've taught them and because I've allowed them to struggle through some of those things, they're now able to take that plus what I've taught them plus what they've learned through that experience. And now they're able to handle bigger difficulties on their own. You see, Mark is, Mark is the gospel of tension. It's this tension of opposites. There is pain and there is difficulty, but there is also hope and there is growth. We don't want to experience the pain, but this is where we find the growth. So as we face these stormy seas of life, we need to learn that the difficult thing, we need to learn how to do this difficult thing of holding the tension of these opposites. I don't like this, but this has value. My life is out of control, but I'm trusting that something good will come out of this. We don't like this, but it carries value. This, these are like, seem to be opposed to one another, but this is how we grow. This is a hard thing to do. This is the hardest path. 
It's a fairly simple concept, but it's really difficult in practice. Remain. Keep rowing. This is the part where you grow. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's painful. Yes, you want things to change, but don't rush to make a, like, to, to fix it immediately. Like, be there. There's a lesson. There's a lesson. What's interesting about this, this concept of like holding the tensions of opposites is that Christianity actually provides a very powerful image for the practice of holding the tension of opposites. And that, believe it or not, is the cross, right? The, 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 the cross as we think of it wasn't like the earliest form. We think of the cross, you know, like this, there it is, just that, that kind of image. That's what we put. That's what we, but like the earliest form of the cross in, in our tradition was actually this, an equidistant cross, uh, uh, four arms, same length. And, and the idea behind this cross is that it was intended to speak to this tension of opposites, the tension of opposition, right? And it's meant to carry this idea of joining these two things, these opposites together, heaven and earth, God, humanity, death and life, pain with hope. The second path is about embracing this tension, right? We live in the difficulty of our stormy seas while trusting and believing that something good will be found on the other side. How do we move through suffering? The difficult truth here is that you can't run from it. You actually have to go through it. This is where the growth is found. How do we move through suffering? The cross, holding the tension of opposites. This is where God is going to be working, changing, developing, growing you. And thank you once again for spending a little bit of time with us. We heard from uh, a few people just in-house right after the message, right after the service this week, uh, that it, it kind of hit them right where they were. And the truth is that's, that's probably the case for a lot of us. Uh, we all, at various points in our life, go through points of difficulty, of challenge, of suffering. You might even say of grieving. And uh, it's at those moments when... Um, we often find ourselves wanting relief from those things. We want God to take the pain away. We want God to take the suffering away. We want God to, to just make it all better. And uh, occasionally God does. But more often what God does is to remind us of his presence and remind us of the fact that through all of those difficult times in life, God promises never to leave us or forsake us. He never uh, abandons us. And that is such a source of hope uh, and ultimately of joy. We hope that uh, you enjoyed this message. We hope we'll see you back uh, here at the Foundry Church podcast real soon. Uh, for now, I'm Joseph. This is all for this episode. Mm-hmm.